near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. NDE Podcast, item number 365. November 23rd, 2021. The NDEs of Adrian W. and Seth C. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. If you're curious about the music from this podcast. It is from my music album, Home, which can be found on neardeathexperiencepodcast.org. Just click on the store button. Today we're going to share the experience of Adrian from enderf.org. He says, the first time I hung myself in the bathroom, suddenly I felt out of my body. I was floating, and I could move my body, but couldn't turn around. I presumed that I was dead. There was nothing interesting about being dead. I sensed hours passing, and I was kind of sleeping. Suddenly, I heard my name being called from the most beautiful voice I had ever heard. The voice was soft, profound, soothing, and loving, as it called Adrian. I tried to turn and look toward the voice, but I couldn't move. Again, Adrian. I answered, yes, I'm here. Do you know what you have done, I heard. No, and I don't care, I replied. Again, the voice called, Adrian. I felt wind. The wind was very soft, and it began to blow softly. Everything was black, no flashes, nothing but darkness. Some thoughts crossed my mind. Then some luminescence began to shine. Then I saw a faint light as it changed to two lights and something square among them. Then I saw three lights and some shadows on the left side. Then it was four candles around a casket. There were three shadows, one standing and the other two were kneeling. The voice asked me, Is this what you want? I answered that I didn't care. The soft wind blew on me again, closer to the shadows. I felt their pain and hearing and heard them sobbing. The shadow who was standing was my father, and my mother was kneeling. The other kneeling shadow was my grandmother, who died two or three years before. I never thought of that, and cried to return. The wind blew again. I woke up wet and with throbbing pain on my head. 
the pipe broken, I was on the floor. The second near-death experience was in May 1982. I was driving and my car engine died. I got out of the car to check it out to fix it. Somebody got out of the car behind me, maybe trying to help, but I didn't trust him. Something happened and suddenly the driver of the other car came out looking for a gun. Some comments were made. I spent, or I went to my car to start the engine. He was there with his revolver. I got out of the car and he shot me. In the hospital, they sent me to the emergency surgery. Suddenly I woke up. What a beautiful day. What a light. There was a very pretty river to my left and an interesting desert to my right. I kept walking near the river and turned to look at it. Across the river was a river beach. Beyond the river was an incredible forest. I tried to see the sun, but couldn't turn around. I kept walking and began to ask myself how thirsty I would be later in the walk. I kneeled to drink from the river. As I got the water in my hand and almost to my mouth, I heard a voice. It said, Don't drink that. It was the same voice from my first near-death experience. I dropped the water, got up, and looked around. But I didn't see anybody, so I kept walking. I was thinking, what a beautiful forest. When I almost jumped in the river to swim across, I heard the voice say, Adrian, no, that's not water. I kept walking. Suddenly, I saw a boat. I approached and saw some weird-looking rocks near the boat. I got closer, and the rocks were people who were sitting and looking at something, somebody talking to them. I approached them. Some people looked at me and smiled. I got behind the person who was standing. I tried to ask him if I could use the boat. He started to talk to them again. I waited for a long time. Then I poked his shoulder and asked him, Excuse me, sir, can I use... He turns around. I blurted out, You son... You really exist! More happiness overcame me, and I embraced him. He smiled at me and asked, What are you doing here? The person was the source of the voice. I asked something, and the answer was, It's not your time. Your son is not born yet. There are many things to do. You have to go back. I said, wait, no, he answered. We'll see each other. Don't worry, go back. I woke up in the recovery room. The nurses treated me well, but acted strange when they were near me. That is the end of Adrian's account. Now, in this account, Adrian speaks of two near-death experiences he had. His first was when he killed himself, and the second is from someone killing him, essentially. And in that first one, where Adrian kills himself, he finds himself in the void, and then some light coming, and with that light comes three shadows, one of which, or two of which, he recognizes as his father and mother, who are sobbing. And he's being asked, 
Do you know what you've done? And is this what you want? As if to kind of bring to his attention what suicide does. And he finds himself seeing it in a new light. And he finds himself in tears and begging to return, crying to return, as he put it. So then when he feels this wind come, there is, you know, suddenly he wakes up on the floor and a pain in his head. And he says, the pipe broke and I was on the floor. Now remember, he hung himself in the bathroom. So I assume from a pipe and uh, rather than ending his life permanently, it ends his life temporarily, just long enough for him to get the message that he needs to come back, that this is not the way to go. This is not the way to return. And he is sent back, and the pipe had broken and fallen on the floor. Now, had the pipe broken before he left, I don't know. It, it, it's honestly kind of interesting because it almost seems like he was given a choice of whether his suicide should be actually fatal or not. And uh, when he decides, no, he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want this to be the end of his life. He still has more to do. He recognizes that now. He sees life in a new perspective, and he realizes he can't end it this way. And so the pipe breaks, and he falls. And I'm sure it wasn't a comfortable recovery. He doesn't talk about that. I don't know. But then he talks about the, the uh, I, want, I almost said accident, but the murder really is what it sounds like. I don't know if he got in a verbal fight with someone, uh, with this person that pulled up behind him. He just says words were exchanged, or comments were made. Some comments were made. I went to my car to start the engine, and he was there with his revolver. I got out of the car, and he shot me. And so he ends up in the hospital, and I don't know if who called for an ambulance or whether, you know, what, I don't know. But uh, anyway, he finds himself suddenly, out of the blue, he finds himself in a beautiful setting where there's a river and a, an incredible forest with a beach, and he's just thoroughly happy. And he goes to drink the water, and this voice says, don't drink that. And he's, when he describes it as being the voice that he'd heard in his first near-death experience, that tells me that it had an audible quality to it, whether it was audible in the strict sense or whether it was telepathic, but with an audible sense about it, you know, timbre, whatever, I don't know. But something about it, he recognizes this voice, and it's the same voice. And then when he finds himself in the presence of a few individuals, and somebody is talking to these people, as he gets close, he's kind of tapping the, the one speaking, saying, hey, I have a question for you, hey. And this person turns, and he is, he kind of, he says, you son, almost as if he's saying, you know, you son of a gun, you know, like, hey, what are you doing here, kind of attitude, that's what I'm gathering. And, but he says, you really exist. So he's got this moment of, 
recognition. It's like this premortal recognition of who this person is, absolutely knows who this person is, but also this mortal aspect of, you know, I've always doubted your existence. So is this God? Is this Jesus? I don't know. He doesn't actually say. Or is this just somebody that he knew before he was born? I don't know. Maybe he's questioning, you know, whether his near-death, first near-death experience was actually real or whether it was just some kind of dream. And he's saying, you really do exist. I don't know. It's, it's, it sounds like the way he describes it, that he doesn't recognize him until the guy turns. But uh, it could be that he's recognizing his voice immediately. It's kind of unclear. Either way, he recognizes this individual and is, from his mortal perspective, surprised to discover that he really exists. He's real. And then he feels this this happiness that overcomes him, and he embraces him. And this, I want to say guy, I guess, because he says smile. He smiled at me. Uh, so this guy says, what are you doing here? And then is told, it's not your time. Your son is not yet born yet. So he's just given this, I mean, prophecy, really, of what is going to happen in his life. He's going to have a son. There's many things for him to do. He says, you have to go back. I said, no, wait. But he says, we'll see each other. Don't worry, go back. It's kind of like this, just trust me on this. You'll be, you'll be back in no time kind of thing. <laughs> go back. And then he wakes up in the recovery room. Now, one of the things that I get out of this experience is that how we see what we do in this life is not necessarily how we're going to see it when we get to the other side. After Adrian kills himself, and he sees either the consequences of what, of what he's done, or perhaps sees in full light what this does. Maybe he's just feeling bad for those who care about him, and he hadn't really thought about that. I don't know, but he, re he sees things new, and he suddenly crying to go back, as if to say, that was a mistake, I should not have done that. It's a bad idea. Sometimes the way that we see the world, the way that we're viewing our own lives, is not how we will see things on the other side. And if we consider that, then hopefully we can take time in moments of extreme emotion, uh, of even mental illness, or or other situations where we're not thinking in any positive way, maybe we can stop and say, you know what, this is not how things really are, this is just how I feel. Now, I know that's easier said than done. I know that in moments of extreme crisis, of extreme depression, of extreme whatever, um, we don't care. I mean, he says over and over, I don't care. I don't care. But that's because he's not seeing in true light. And the thing is, is the, term, the words, I don't care, are often words that we use to express the idea that I care very much and it hurts very badly. That's really what we're saying in some way. Because if we didn't care, we wouldn't bother with the effort of doing the horrible thing that we're considering doing. That's more work. That's more effort. Just lay down on a bed. 
and, and go to sleep or whatever if you really don't actually care. But it's not that we don't care. It's that we're hurting very badly and don't know what to do about it. And we use the words, I don't care, as a way of masking that or, or patching it in some way. And we're fooling ourselves, is, is a fact. We're, we're kind of lying to ourselves in order to justify what we're doing and so forth. And, and I'm not trying to cast judgment on any choices that somebody makes in a time of extreme depression or fear or anxiety or whatever. Just recognize that what you're feeling now is a feeling, and it may be a very powerful one, but it is not based in the reality of your spirit, eternal being. Okay, there is more going on there. And so seek help, do what you got to do, but, but don't act out in a negative way when you're feeling down because there's more to this life than what you're feeling right now. Okay, let's do one more. This is Seth, also from Enderf.org. And uh, Seth has a video of him telling his story in more detail. Um, and if you'd like to see that, there is a link to... We, we usually put a link in the show notes to the original experience. And on that page, you can see uh, Seth's video of him telling this experience. And, and it's a very religiously based experience, um, but it's definitely one worth looking into. Seth says, I had a major heart attack on Friday the 13th of May 2016. It was the worst kind you can have. I tried to call relatives who were in the house for help. They thought I was over-exaggerating. One of them joked, I feel like I'm having a heart attack too. Since they wouldn't take me seriously, I tried to take a shower. But by the time I was done, I knew something was terribly wrong. So I stumbled into my bedroom and called 911. I don't remember getting dressed, talking to the dispatcher, or walking down three flights of concrete steps. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, I was relieved to see I had clothes on. But I had ripped a fingernail off. The paramedics pulled up as soon as I arrived at the bottom of the stairs. The paramedic calmed me down. I started to go unconscious, and the paramedic was asking me what my pain level was. I tried to answer him and distinctly remember saying, 7 on a scale of 1 to 10. He responded, okay, stay with me. I was confused as to why he didn't hear me. At this point, I knew that I was dying and got very scared. Then, boom, I was surrounded by a beautiful white light. I was wondering about my beloved dog, Blue, who had just died ten days before this event. He spoke to me telepathically and in English. It was very comforting to know he was okay. I then had a whoosh of a sudden information, like an instant download of information. The information was about all my loved ones and so much more that I can't remember at all. Then I met my best friend, who I had wanted to see for so long. It was Jesus. I just knew it. Even though he didn't say my name, I didn't ask his either. 
It was like we always knew each other, and he loved me so much. All the information and communication we had was telepathic and instantaneous. I do remember arguing with him at the end, not in a bad way, but saying, please don't send me back there. I audibly heard his voice, and I'll never forget his real voice. He said, no, not yet. I still cry when I think of this experience. And I would encourage you, that that's the end of uh, Seth's experience, I would encourage you to go and watch Seth's video because he he is a lot more, um, I guess, animated, uh, more interesting to uh, listen to than I am. But uh, the experience is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, when he responds to the doctor about, what's your pain scale? And he's like, that's about a seven. The doctor does not hear him because he's already separated from his body. Now, he hasn't left his body, but he's already become separated from his body within the same space because he doesn't know yet that he's dead. But when the doctor doesn't respond, he realizes that he's actually dying. And then all of a sudden he's surrounded by light. He's, I'm not sure what makes him immediately wonder about his dog. He I think he knows he's dead at this point. I think he recognizes that he's dead because he says, at this point, I knew I was dying and then got very scared. And then boom, he's surrounded by white light. Now, there is something in near-death experiences about realizing one is dead and then moving quickly on to the other side. It's as if our assuming that we're not dead yet is kind of holding us here to some level. Now, that's not consistent throughout, but that seems common. So it's possible that it's our belief that we are here and our recognition that we are here that acts as part of the glue that keeps us here. It seems that sometimes when people have a uh, a scared death experience, you know, something where they don't die, but they quite nearly do, you know, maybe it's a near-miss car accident or something where for a moment they know they are going to die. There's just this absolute, you know, this is it, it's over, where they will suddenly whoom, be in a near-death experience and have this entire experience and come back just at the moment of that alarm and they find that, oh, I missed, or oh, this impact never actually happened. It was close, but it didn't happen. And when that kind of thing happens, when they have that experience, it seems to be that that belief or recognition of death seems to be what propels them on. And so he, Seth, is realizing he's he's going to die. And then, boom, he's on the other side. And so being on the other side, perhaps that's what makes him think, well, gosh, my dog, who just died 10 days ago, I wonder how he's doing. And I don't know if he sees his dog. He just says he's wondering about his dog. And then his dog speaks to him in English. Now, this sounds bizarre to someone who's not familiar with near-death experiences. This is like, well, wait a minute. He's not even seeing his dog, or maybe he is, but he hasn't mentioned that fact. He's just thinking about his dog, and suddenly he's communicating with his dog telepathically in English. How would he even recognize his dog's voice? Well, that's the thing about being on the other side. 
that I find so interesting, or one of them, is that people recognize each other from just their being. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when you're talking to someone you love, say your mother or your brother or somebody who you're really close to and you're just talking to them, there's not moments in that conversation where you stop and ask yourself, wait, is this really mom? Is this really her? I, I'm not sure because yeah, it looks like her and it, and it sounds like her, but is it really? You don't stop and ask yourself those questions because you're enveloped in their essence. Their, their essence is absolutely with you because they are there and you know them. Now, we do a lot of that, uh, you know, we assume that a lot of that comes from visual, and probably it does in the mortal world that we're in, but there is an essence of knowing someone that is bypassed on every level on the other side, so that when somebody approaches us, whether we see or hear anything, if they are present, we feel and know it's them. Like, so completely that it goes way beyond the visual. Way beyond the visual. It's kind of like uh, comparing... It's kind of like, you know, seeing someone in this earth. We know them so clearly and obviously that we don't think about what that person smells like. We don't even think about it. And on the other side, I think our seeing visual, while there, usually, is about as potent as the sense of smell is here. You may know the smell of your grandparent, for example, but you don't think about it because the visual and the audio aspects of them are so much more prominent. I think that's what vision is like on the other side. When you're in somebody's presence, whether you can see them or hear them or whatever, if they are there, you feel them. You know it's them. You are in their essence, so to speak. And so that seems to be what's happening with Seth here. He, And, and so when he says that he sp speaks telepathically and in English <laughs> to his dog, he's obviously recognizing him in that essential element. And whether he saw him or not is kind of irrelevant. He doesn't even mention whether he sees him or not. He just says that I spoke with him in my mind. And I think that's just cool. And he goes on and he says he was comforted to know that his dog was okay. And suddenly there's this whoosh of information, this instant download of information. And all he gives about details of this information, he says, is it's about his loved ones and so much more. And he can't remember it all. That's, that's it. That's, that's all he brought back with him. And that's all he could bring back, probably. That's all he had to work with. But then he meets his best friend. I love this. He's his best friend. Seth is an ordinary guy. Get on his video, you'll see. He looks like somebody you would bump bump into on the street, at the grocery store, just an ordinary guy, okay? He's not a prophet, he's not um, some kind of uh, messenger from God, so to speak. He's an ordinary guy, but he's also best friends with Jesus. And I think that is so cool, because I think we all are. I think we all are.
and he recognizes him. He says, I, I just knew it was him. And he says, even though he didn't say his name and I didn't say his name, we didn't have to. You don't say, you don't have to say, hey, aren't you Bob when you're best friends with Bob? You don't say that. And you wouldn't. Why would you? He says, it was like we always knew each other and he loved me so much. That's just cool. And he says, all the information and communication we had was telepathic and instantaneous. <laughs> when you know when people talk about how they don't know if near-death experiences are telling the truth or if they're exaggerating or whatever what my experience is is that they are under exaggerating they are understating and they don't have words for what they're what they experience so when they talk about it they're just like I, it was telepathic and instantaneous that was the communication that's all i can say about that and you're like well wait what well, well, you know that's huge do you realize what you're suggesting and they're like yes and i don't have the words for it so that's what you get good luck you know <laughs> he does say i do remember arguing with him at the end not in a bad way but saying please don't send me back there and he says i audibly heard his voice and i will never forget his real voice. And that's interesting because they were speaking telepathically, but now he hears it audibly. And he says, I'll never forget his real voice. He says, no, not yet. It's not his time. Seth needs to go back. And the last thing that he says about it is, I still cry when I think of this experience. Have you ever thought about, you know, when people share their near-death experiences, they cry. Often they cry. And they can't get it out because they're crying so much. Why are they crying? Now, you out there that have deeply spiritual experiences, deeply religious experiences, have shared testimonies, uh, things like that, you get it. And I think you do. But not everybody out there has had those experiences. So I want to talk for a second about why do people cry when they have near-death experiences. And even they describe in their near-death experience often that they're bawling uncontrollably, but it's not hindering their vision and not, <laughs> you know, it's like the perfect cry and it is a full cry. Why are they crying? Now, we're all familiar with happy cries, joyful cries, right? You see your friend after many, many years, and you're just like, oh my gosh, it's so good to see you, or, or things like that. That is what we're talking about. So why, when they're back in the presence of Jesus, or their loved ones, or in the light, in this joy, are they crying? It's because that happy, joyous, that overwhelming, loving, amazing feeling overcomes them, and it takes over. And you know from ugly cries, and there are ugly happy cries. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, there are ugly happy cries where people are crying so hard because they're so overjoyed, so overwhelmed with love and excitement and, and you know, the uh, reunion or whatever, that it's an ugly cry. And this is common. But the thing about this is that that is because the mortal body is not capable 
of expressing the full range of emotions that the spirit feels. And I think the spirit is so, is even the experience that we're having here, as he describes, you know, he crying, crying while, while thinking of this experience, he is still dampened down by the body. So he's not experiencing it in full, in, in a sense, at least in the mortal body, in, the, in this imperfect version of our body. He can't, he, he can't feel it fully because he's so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed. And uh, that, that overwhelming sensation, I mean, why do people have it? Because the most incredible, beautiful, wonderful things that have ever happened to them overwhelm them. And here's the reason I bring this up. Here's the reason I bring this up. And I, I think it's fortuitous in a way that we shared this with, in conjunction with Adrian's experience because Adrian's experience involved first him kill, killing himself, a choice that was, you know, we don't know the circumstances leading up to it, but, but he's, he's realizing that was a mistake. I should not have done that. And then Seth's experience of, of coming across his best friend in eternity and being overwhelmed by this experience. We're all headed for this experience. Near-death experiences are not for the few. They're the few that get the glimpse. It's kind of like, it's kind of like we're all preparing for this incredible Thanksgiving feast. And a few kids get in the kitchen and they get a sample of the turkey or the potatoes or, or the cranberry sauce and they come back and they're like, you guys, it is amazing. It is amazing. And we're all like, oh man, I want to taste. I want to taste. And we're all complaining or wishing we could have a taste. And yet we're all headed for the feast. Now we can choose based on how we live our life how our reception to the feast will go. Will it be with tears and sorrow and and regret? Or will it be with, hey, it's so good to see you again. I mean, even Adrian describes in his second experience, it's almost more like Seth's experience, where, I mean, he didn't, he was not intending to die. He was not making a choice that led to his death intentional. And he, and when he recognizes who he's with, he's like, dude, he says, more happiness overcame me. And I embraced him. Sounds very similar to Seth's experience, running into Jesus, his best friend ever. And we are like children just anticipating the feast and in the meantime, the grown-ups are telling us, you gotta wait, you gotta wait, you got work to do, well, you know, so we're being asked to cut up carrots, and we're being asked to do, a, you know, do our work while we're here, anticipating this feast. We don't have to live our entire lives only for the feast. We can enjoy life now, and we should. But it's okay if that anticipation of the feast 
helps carry us through the difficulties of this life. That's okay. Because we're all headed for the same feast. And I will say, as my own opinion, and many of you may disagree with this, and that's okay. That's okay. We can have different ideas about it. But by living a life that is consistent with the kind of person that we set out to be, we are likely to have a much better experience at that feast than we will if we live our lives in such a way as to be selfish or maybe to try to end it early or to do things to hurt others. If you live life to the fullest now, what that really deeply means is that we do the things that we came here to do and we stay close to God. We seek out the spiritual connection and we try to live for love, love for God, love for other people, love for ourselves. We live for love. When we are truly doing that, we are setting ourselves up for the best experience at that feast. Whereas if we live selfishly and we're constantly trying to snitch and make ourselves miserable with temper tantrums and so forth, so that when we get to the feast, yes, it's there before us and we don't get to enjoy it as much because we've been, we're in such a state as to tantrum about it. I'm not saying <laughs> that we're going to be tantruming on the other side. What I'm suggesting is that how we live now affects how our experience will be on the other side. I think there is something to be said for living a good life and doing our best while we are here. Some would suggest that you can do what you want and we will go to the other side and experience happy, happily ever after just like everybody else. I don't believe that to be true. Not really. Now, will there be a feast? Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the case. But there's more to it than just the feast. There's the experience with each other. There's the opportunities to have heaven on this earth. Maybe not in a mortal sense. Maybe not a physical heaven. But there's so much of heaven that we can create here. That we're here to create. Maybe that's part of the reason for being here. You hear of people coming back and teaching and sharing love and being, you know, instruments to try to bring about peace in their community or, or to try to, to recover children of drug abuse who have, have gone through rehabilitation over and over and they're there to help them and so forth. What they're doing is they're trying to bring love back in that person's life. They're trying to bring heaven here. And that's our intent, is to bring heaven here. Not to rush back to heaven, but to bring it here. Will it be perfectly as joyful as heaven there? Of course not. Of course not. But does that mean we should just give up and say, ah, what's the use? Of course not. That's not an act of love. But when we act in love and we bring heaven here, we make heaven bigger, in a sense. And we invite others to it. 
call that missionary work, call that a, uh, a ministry, or just call it being a loving individual. I, I don't care what you call it. We're here for a reason, and we should do good while we're here. And we should not be too judgmental of other people, of their ideas, ideals, or even their, heaven forbid, politics, <laughs> or their views on vaccines or masks or whatever. It, we can let that stuff go, and we can love and bring heaven here. And I congratulate all of you who have put up with my tangent this long. <laughs> I just wanted to make the point that there is purpose in living life to its best, to its fullest, to its most loving. And loving doesn't always mean not correcting. Often it does mean correcting. It means helping and bringing people back to a state of love when they have been in a hateful or a pain state for so long because of their personal choices. That is an act of love. And whether it's received that way or not, is not up to us. We reach out in love. We try to do our best. We fail and we try again. And we fail and we try again in love. And as we do, we learn and we grow and our spirits expand and they develop and become and do what we came here to become and do. And with that, thank you again, all of you, for listening. Chaz and I thank you for listening to Near Death Experience Podcast. You can reach out to your hosts by using Chaz, C-H-A-S, at ndepodcast.org and John, J-O-H-N, at ndepodcast.org. You can text or call the show at 970-633-2278. That's 970-NDE-CAST. Calling allows you to record your message in three-minute increments. If your message runs longer than three minutes, just call back and we can splice the segments together. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching NDE Podcast on those sites and join our Facebook NDE Podcast community. Please leave feedback for the show on iTunes or via whatever application you use to listen to us. Doing so will allow our audience to grow and help spread the knowledge about spiritually transformative experiences to more listeners. You can help keep the show financially viable by purchasing Chaz's music or his book under the store link on the ndepodcast.org website or by going to patreon.com slash ndepodcast where you can make a one-time only donation or become an ongoing supporter. Whether you decide to write or call us or you choose to support the show either financially or by writing a review or by listening and sharing us with others we are so humbly thankful for you. We can't begin to express how much touching you spiritually means to us. Chaz and I thank you for joining us. We hope you keep listening and applying the understanding you gain from the show about your existence after this earthly life so you have a better life right now. 
and to love one another. This is your host, John Messer, reminding you that it's all about attitude and gratitude, and our attitude should always be love.